From 1944 to 1945, the 52nd Lowland Division is fighting its way across Northwest Europe. The writing is on the wall, but it's also on the page. The Army Education Branch sends a newsletter out to thousands of men, all pulling together, pushing the enemy back. This newsletter is called The Lowlander. Andy. Hello, Mary. Hello, hello. This very first week, we are looking at editions of The Lowlander that were sent out to the men between the 15th and 19th of November 1944. But before we start picking out the articles that catch our eye, we should explain a little bit more about what The Lowlander is. Yeah, I think that's a very good idea. Uh, well, The Lowlander was a divisional newspaper, uh, well, really a news sheet, and it was produced by the division's army education branch. Now, we don't know that much about the Army Education Branch itself within the division, um, and the day-to-day running of the of the branch wasn't really documented very well. But we do know there was a Major G.L. Wilde in charge, and he was the officer commanding for the, um, for the Army Education Branch in the 52nd. So I'm assuming that he's got something to do with it. And the editor and his colleagues would have been working out of the 52nd Lowland Division's headquarters at Bergen-Upzum in the Netherlands. Mm. Um, uh, and I found the Lowlander when I was in the National Archives. I was looking for various different regiments of the 52nd Division's war diaries, uh, and I found this thing just sitting there. It was the it was called the Lowlander. But while we're talking about it, maybe you should just take a second to describe what the Lowlander actually looks like. Mm, okay, so the Lowlander is a double-sided sheet of paper. It's slightly longer than A4, I suppose. And at the top on the front side, as it were, there's a I don't know, about fifth of a page banner with the 52nd Lowland Division's badge, the St Andrew's badge. And then on both sides, there are updates, odd press releases, there's news, articles, jottings from home, there's the weekly football results, there's all sorts well, of we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the football results later. <laughs> yeah, all right. Um, there are maps and cartoons. There's, there's everything in there that you might imagine to, to keep a few jocks entertained, educated and informed. They, it's, it's about keeping them up to speed, really, on what's going on and what's going on at home. Yeah, but it's not just news or jottings from home. One of the Lowlanders' main tasks was to share consistent news about what was happening in the war. Which comes back to the the, the whole thing about why are we fighting, I suppose. So it's a morale booster as much as anything else. Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's plenty of funny little stories in there to keep people's um, chins up. It's probably a good idea to fess up here. We both get excited about this. You, because it's the 52nd, and me, because it's all about the written word and how persuasive that can be and, and what people write and why. We might get into some of that nuance later. But it's not the only service newspaper in circulation during the war, is it? No, it's quite common, actually. Um, the South African forces in the Middle East had something called the Weekly Springbok. Canadian troops in Europe had the Maple Leaf, which was printed daily. Um, Indian troops had com- something called Fauji Akbar. And the 7th Armoured Division newspaper had the Jaboa Times. And we'll mm. come to that maybe next year. Yeah, it was it was quite regionalised. There was, um, I mean, you'd got victory for British soldiers in India, and then you'd even got things like the Land Girl back in Britain for the Women's Land Army, and uh, I think there was one called the Rooster for RAF Shetland. But also from the Axis perspective, this wasn't just an Allied concept. So the Italians had something called Il Piave, Settimanale dei Soldati Italiani con Lotara Armata, and the Germans had um, several. Um, divisional newspapers. One in particular that I can think of was called Marine Front Zeitung, and that 
sort of devolved into front sighting the North Sea, Canal Coast, Western. So you'd have regional newspapers exactly like you've got um, syndicated newspapers today. It was an entire industry of frontline reading. And there was me thinking the Lowlander was special. I know. Special is a very good word, but it's only special by affiliation, I'm afraid. <laughs> and we're not, going to go, we're not going to be reading the whole thing, are we? No, 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 no. No, we're not going to read the whole thing each time. Um, we're going to pick bits and pieces out that really appeal to us, the stories that catch our eye as we look through. We've got about 30 weeks worth leading right up to and just beyond the, the other side of Surrender in May 1945. Um, but before we do dig into the first editions of The Lowlander, can you please explain, and I can't believe I'm saying this, can you explain what the 52nd Lowland Division is, please? <laughs> right. <laughs> Pull up a sandbag, get make your sure notepad my, and pen out. Make sure my seams are on the right side, yeah, I know. Yeah. Well, what is the 52nd Lowland Division? The 52nd Lowland Division was a British infantry division which served in Northwest Europe from around about October 1944 through to May 1945. And in fact, they went on after the war to serve in Germany until 1946. Now, the name suggests they're Lowlanders. They're from the Lowlands of Scotland. And they were a territorial division who mobilised uh, just before the Second World War, around about August 1939, although lots of the guys within the division had already been serving in the various different regiments and uh, units that, that made up the division. Um, I won't go into the, all the details of who all the regiments are. You'll get to know them as we go along with the Lowlander for the next 30-odd weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, but they've had a bit of a strange warp at this point. So, um, they, as I said, they mobilised just before the outbreak of the, the Second World War. After Dunkirk, um, they sent over a couple of British and a Canadian division over to France and landed at Cherbourg. So they actually fought in France in 1940 mm-hmm. for about 10 days, which second BEF, so before, thankfully, they were all pulled back. They came back to the UK in the summer of 1940 and they were put onto invasion duties in Norfolk and then back up to Scotland. Now, early 1942, uh, the British Army didn't really know what it was doing. Things weren't going well. So they decided what we need is a, a, is a mountain trained division. So mm-hmm. if we have to go and fight anywhere in the world where there's mountains, we've got a division that can do that. And the 52nd Lowland were just sitting around in Scotland. So they were decided, well, they'll be the ones. And they spent two years in and around the Cairngorms trialling and developing mountain and Arctic warfare. Um, and the division was entirely um, able to move as a division without any vehicles. It had um, Indian mule carriers and it developed mountain warfare. Now, as it turns out, they were never used for that role. Um, and in fact, they played a vital part of what's known as uh, Operation Fortitude North, which is the deception plan for D-Day. Um, and the presence of the 52nd Lone Division in Scotland uh, held a number of German divisions that were based in Scandinavia, Norway, where there was mountains and they expected them to land. Not too long after that, they were then taken off the mountain roll. They uh, became part of the Allied Airborne Army as air transportable infantry. And actually, at one point, they were on the runway with the engines running to fly into Arnhem as part of Operation Market Garden uh, to support the 1st Air, uh, Airborne Division in their fight there. Thankfully, that was called off. And actually, pretty shortly after that, they were then mobilised as a conventional line infantry division and they sailed away to northwest Europe, landing at Ostend in the middle of October 1944. Well, that's quite complex. <laughs> it's quite a lot, isn't it? But you've been taking notes, so it's fine. You can check them later. There, there'll be a test later, I'm sure. All right. Okay. Well, yeah. with all that in mind, and bearing in mind that I'm sure you'll keep us up to speed on, on, on where they are and what they're doing all the way through, yeah. shall we start with the first week's editions of The Lowlander? 
Well, I think we've been talking for long enough, so yeah. <laughs> Fifteenth of November, nineteen forty-four. The Second Army strikes again. At four o'clock yesterday afternoon, British troops launched their new offensive to clear the German pocket in Holland to the west of the River Mass. Our troops went into the attack in an area three miles square. Four hundred guns sent two thousand shells a minute into enemy strong points. The general direction of this new thrust is to the southeast of Eindhoven, around the village of Neerdervit. There have been indications of a German withdrawal here. Windmills have been demolished to prevent us using them as observation posts. On Monday, our patrols entered Maifil without encountering resistance. However, strong rear guards and minefields can be expected, and of course, difficult marshy country and worse weather. So I've got a couple of observations straight off here. Number one, they don't make it easy, do they? I mean, no. No, I mean, I know that they're... We'll put um, up some snippets of this so people can see what one of these looks like, obviously. But even though the, the, the place names are written in capital letters, which is kind of sort of industry standard, there'll be a proper army term of that. Um, it's, it's really hard to read because the editor doesn't, doesn't write. Well, why didn't he realise that 80 years later I was going to be trying to read it out live? On a podcast, I have no idea, but it, it's it's hard work. I mean, some, some of it's hard work. I I do know it gets better. The other thing I'm distracted by on this our first page is a big map at the bottom of uh, of the yes. sheet. Yes, yeah. Now, it's not a very good map, I have to say. But no. um, in terms of being able to find your way around, I wouldn't want to use it in you know in in the dark but having said that for the jocks who have not long been in the country they will know where they are they'll know the names of the places on this map and it suffices doesn't it oh yeah and these are names that they would have heard of so Eindhoven they would have heard of after Market Garden of course because that was in the news and all the rest Mm. of it also it gives them more context of what the other people in the British army are doing because of course the second army is the army that they're part of or they will be not just at the minute because they're actually under the Canadians, but that's let's not complicate that. But yeah, the maps are really helpful, and I think I think as we go through the Lowlander, the maps do start to improve. So I don't know if they sack, <laughs> sack the um, the cartographer and get a new one in. <laughs> okay, and and the other thing that I mean, just just to finish this off, the very first article we've read out, the very first sentence starts with at four o'clock yesterday afternoon. So presumably the editor or the team or whoever is putting things together has got access to information and is allowed to distribute it relatively quickly. Yeah, it's interesting. And and when you go into the war diaries, you do see update reports, some intelligence reports, which are secret, also some other stuff that's actually freely available. I I suspect this would have been part of a general briefing they would have issued to troops. Okay. Well, that makes sense. That's the first one done and dusted. Shall we yeah. crack on? Yep. Clackety-ping. Clackety-ping. 16th of November, 1944. Britain and the Netherlands. Many have been the associations between the Dutch and British peoples in the past, in peace and in war. From time to time, it's hoped to include short articles showing how closely our histories have been interwoven. Here is just one example taken from a letter recently sent to the Daily Telegraph by Brigadier Law. At the time of the Peninsular War in 1810 to 1811, he wrote, a force, including my grandfather's regiment, the 71st Highland Light Infantry, was sent to Holland and landed on Walcheren. Disease, particularly scurvy, soon broke out. Food was bad and scarce and there was no quinine. 
Every morning, the men were paraded and had to drink sarsaparilla out of a bucket. But after some months, the force was withdrawn. It's believed that traces of this earlier and unsuccessful landing on Walcheren may have been found during our recent operations there. Should this be so, any reports of discoveries would be appreciated by the editor. Now, where have we heard of Walcheren before? <laughs> you don't think? Well, I mean, we should probably point out to our to our listeners this is um, this was on the sixteenth of November, uh, nineteen forty four. So as this uh, as this has been written, uh, the fifty second Lowland Division or the bulk of the fifty second Lowland Division is actually on Walcheren Island after mm. capturing it early in November. In fact, the, the landing took place on the 1st of November and pretty much all the German resistance was cleared up by the 8th of November. So this is a week or so past that. And as it turns out, they're not the first. I, I guess the jocks would have been sitting in a, a, a wet ditch or several wet ditches reading their copies of a lowland. And for a lot of the, the, the lads, I guess this has been the first time they realised that this wasn't the first time they'd been to Walcheren. Well, yeah, I mean, it's. I mean, I don't know if many people would have known where Walkerman was, to be honest. In fact, they don't really know where it is nowadays either. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, they, they, it's um, it's it's funny how history repeats itself, and that, and of course, people found that when they were fighting in Normandy, and then they land, they moved up through uh, through the Somme battlefields and through Amiens and all that sort of stuff. So all these things they keep cropping up time and time again. So and there's a direct connection there, of course, because it mentioned the seventy first Highland Light Infantry. Well, mm. within the division itself, there's the 5th Battalion and the 6th Battalion of the Highland Light Infantry, and mm. also uh, the 1st Battalion of the Glasgow Highlanders, which is also a Highland Light Infantry battalion, confusingly enough. So there's a, a real connection there, which is probably why the um, the editors decided to put this in one of the early editions. Well, that all makes perfect sense. 17th of November, 1944. The Lowlander Club Room. If you're passing through Bergen op Zoom and you get the chance, drop into the Lowlander Club Room next to the Luxor Cinema. It's especially designed for the tired soldier and has comfortable chairs, books to read, games to play and many other home comforts. It's not perfect and there's lots of improvements needed, but it's a place where you can relax without fear of the Sergeant Major surprising you. You can even meet your friends from other units. The scheme is experimental, it's up to you whether it's a success or not. If it is, then we hope to have a similar club room started where the division moves, be that Holland, Germany, Italy or Japan. So that's really quite a caring thing to do then. Well, it's, it's a bit sinister at the end, just mentioning Japan, isn't it? <laughs> it is a bit. But, but even so, is this somewhere where, you, you know, even as a lowly private, you could have gone for half an hour? Yeah, I mean, the, the Lowlander club room itself is really for the lower ranks, so anything okay. sort of sergeant or below, although I'm sure anybody would have been able to pop in if they mm -hmm. wanted a cup of tea or a, or, or a book or whatever. Um, of course, the officers have the officers' mess and they have their own officer clubs, and the senior NCOs, the sergeants and the sergeant majors, they would have their sergeant's mess. But, um, yeah, I mean, the commander of the 52nd Lowland Division at the time, Edmund Hakewell-Smith, Major General Edmund Hakewell-Smith, he was really keen on soldier welfare. And in fact, it's one of his priorities to make sure that the guys have places to rest, recuperate, get out the line, get, you know, have a cup of tea, have a chill out, relax. And so it's really indicative of how the 52nd Lowland Division approached the welfare of its troops. I mean, it's got the newspaper, it likes to keep them informed. Mm -hmm. And actually, the, the 52nd Lowland Club Room is actually where probably most people would have got hold of a copy of the, the Lowlander. Um, so it's all part of that welfare thing, which, which when you read into the 52nd Lowland Division, 
it might not be exceptional, but they certainly take a real interest in the welfare of the men. I say, Merrin, have you ever read With the Jocks, A Soldier's Struggle for Northwest Europe by Peter White? Why, yes, I have, Andy. And would you like to follow in the footsteps of the 52nd Lone Division? I say, that sounds rather marvellous. Excellent. Then why not come on a battlefield tour with me, Andy Edgson, and you, Madden Walters, Walking with the Jocks, in October 2024. Pop along to walkingwiththejocks.co.uk, that's walkingwiththejocks.co.uk, to find out more. Seventeenth November, nineteen forty-four. Six Allied armies on the move. The whole front in the west has swung into action. From Holland to the Swiss frontier, six armies are battering the defences with which the Germans hope to stem the Allied flood. On our left flank, General Dempsey's men have practically cleared the enemy from the west bank of the River Maas opposite Roermond, and here our shells are now falling on German soil. Little opposition has been met though many mines have still to be lifted. Between the British 2nd and the American 1st Armies, the US 9th Army, commanded by Lieutenant General Simpson, has reappeared, west of Geilenkirchen. This force, which was last heard of at Brest, at quarter to one yesterday afternoon, smashed across the anti-tank ditches, which Hitler's laboured battalions had been furiously excavating. Well, mm. my 52nd Lone Antenna started beeping then because <laughs> you mentioned a team uh, a town called Gallenkirchen well it's a city really oh, oh mine went off when he, when I mentioned Roermond as well yeah yeah of course so there's two names there. so there's Roermond and, and Gallenkirchen and we'll do a bit of foreshadowing here we won't tell you what's going to happen but it's going to be quite mm. an important part of the 52nd story as we move into 1945 um, but it's interesting that there's already talking about places that the 52nd will go and, and the other crucial thing was he mentioned it's where the join between the British and the American armies are, and that will yeah. be much more important um, as we get on in the Lowlander. In a section we call Jottings from Home, 18th of November 1944. Small businesses reopening in coastal towns between the Humber and Land's End will be offered £150 loans by the government. That's quite a bit of money. It is. Well, well I mean, it's quite a lot of money now. I could do with £150. Quid, but... <laughs> But in this classic thing, the minute you talk about money from the olden days, you say, well, how much is that now? Uh, £150 was about, uh, it, today that would be about £7,500. But, okay. uh, but you have to kind of put that into perspective as well, because when you think about how much £150 would, would have bought you in 1944, it's still a lot of money. Yeah. Um, the, the average net income was around £380 in Scotland and about £400 in England, obviously. Um, the, but uh, but that's that's down to the, the lower levels of average earnings in Scotland being mm-hmm. disproportionate numbers of workers in declining industries like the, the Dundee Duke trade and things like that. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I should imagine when it says the coastal towns have been the Humber, I'm just drawing the line down to Land's End, I'm assuming that's because most of that seafront area was cleared for the invasion and the invasion scare in sort of 1940 41. Ooh, I hadn't thought of that. Well, yeah, that would make sense because, of course, people couldn't just visit this, the seaside where there was beach defences and all sorts of stuff. So I should imagine it's kind of a little bit of a, a, a booster scheme for those businesses. And, and the other thing is, of course, it wages at the time. So skilled manual labour would have been on about £3 a week. 
unskilled right. labor two pounds a week a painter would have earned about four pounds a week a professional footballer used to earn seven pounds a week oh that's quite a bit did you play for norwich city <laughs> Eighteenth of November, nineteen forty-four. Mister Churchill has called for maximum Jewish cooperation in stamping out the terrorist movements responsible for the death of Lord Moyne. Cool, that's a sentence and a half. That is. Yeah. I, I, well, first question is who is Lord Moyne? <laughs> okay. Second question is how did he die? <laughs> well, Lord Moyne was um, Walter Guinness. He was an MP, fifth Baron Moyne. He was a British Minister of State in the Middle East, um, and he opposed the establishment of Jewish army units over there, partly you get this to avoid offending Arab sensibilities. Sharp and mm-hmm. take a breath. But even worse than that, he he was alleged to have been right at the centre of the blood for trucks scandal. You know about that? Um, yeah, blood for that. Yeah, that's right. So, so the guy there was a guy called Joel Brand who was part of the Jewish Hungarian Aid and Rescue Committee. And he came to the British in April 1944 with a proposal from Adolf Eichmann. Um, the proposal went along the lines of, in short, the Nazis would release up to a million or so Jews in exchange for 10,000 or more trucks and, and other bits and pieces from, from the Allied mm. forces. Um, Brand was arrested and taken to Cairo. And he reported that during one of the interrogation sessions, an Englishman, Moyne, asked him about Eichmann's proposal and then... To, to whatever he said, replied, what can I do with a million Jews? Where can oh I put them? Yeah, I know. So in, in, Brown, in Brown's view, that was Lord Moyne. There is mm-hmm. some debate about that. But what's not debated is that Moyne was in favour of blood for guilt. Okay, not not right. necessarily all for trucks, but blood for guilt, which is an incredibly bad scene. Um, although, having said that, I think the intelligence later on decided that it was most of this was a German trap to try and embarrass us. Yeah. But anyway, Moyne was seen as an architect of, uh, of our immigration policy, and he, he was personally responsible for Britain's Palestine policy at the time, and, and that led to his assassination. It was the Lehi Group. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody will tell me if I'm pronouncing that wrong. I, I pronounce all of these things wrong. Don't worry about <laughs> it. Um, but he, he was assassinated in Cairo on the 6th of November in 1944, and I know that the, 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 what the assassins said was, um, that, that the reason they took him out was that he symbolised the British Empire through his presence in Cairo. They weren't in a position to, to you know, launch an attack on Churchill, assassinate Churchill. Mm. So the set, so the second best option for them was to to hit Lord Moyne in Cairo. Well, that was a bit heavy, wasn't it? It was a bit, wasn't it? All in okay. one sentence. Um, but it just gives you an idea of the scope and scale of the information and the stories that they're producing in the Lowlander. Um, it gives an idea of, of, of the kind of the, the breadth of education within the division and, and that they can produce stories like this and somebody will understand what they're talking about. Hopefully. 18th of November, 1944. Lieutenant General Raymond Wheeler of the US Army is to succeed General Stilwell as Deputy Commander of Southeast Asia Command. The plane that was carrying Trafford Lee Mallory to his appointment as Commander Air Forces Southeast Asia Command is missing. Mm, there's a lot there too. So that's Vinegar Joe Stilwell, isn't it? Yes, of course, he was famous for the American commander in Burma um, fighting uh, the, the Japanese and uh, deeply unpopular with just about everybody, but, but pretty effective, I think. And then I'd, I'd forgotten, of course, that Trafford Lee Mallory went missing. 
Yes, he did. And of course, um, he went missing. And uh, what they didn't know in the lowland at this point is his plane on its flight to Southeast Asia actually crashed uh, not far from Chamonix in the French Alps, um, killing himself and his wife who was travelling with him. Very sad. That's very sad. 19th November 1944. Into Germany. For the first time, the British Second Army is fighting in strength on German soil. Its initial attack continues to make headway in clearing the west bank of the River Maas, and advance units are now less than six miles from the frontier town of Venlo. But the main weight has now been thrown against the town of Geilenkirchen to the south, roughly two-thirds of the way from Venlo to Aix. At seven o'clock yesterday morning, after sappers and flail tanks had worked all night to breach the minefields before this strongly fortified town, our infantry struck at the ridge of ground to the north. Five hours later, in a small-scale pincer movement, a second attack was launched from the south. Both have gone well. The more northerly arm has advanced two miles and cut the road from Geilenkirchen to Heinsberg. Despite fierce German resistance and reinforcements, 400 prisoners have been taken, pillboxes demolished and 88mm artillery neutralised. Success here will squeeze out a... What's that say? Oh, success here will squeeze out a potential threat to the US 9th Army immediately to the south. Now, I've made a mistake there, but only because some of this sheet really isn't easy to read, is it? It's not very well reproduced. I mean, I, I took photographs in the, in the archives, uh, but the mm. actual print quality, and I, I, I'm assuming they're using a very basic reprographic machine in, the, in divisional headquarters. So it does mean that sometimes the, the words are a bit jumbled, <laughs> and also sometimes there's spelling mistakes as well. Yeah, and I can I can never remember how to pronounce aches. A I X is it yeah. A? Yeah. And of course, what we're talking about there is. Operation Clipper. Now, Operation Clipper was the British 30 Corps offensive uh, to take Gallenkirchen and the surrounding area. Um, and they, they mentioned Gallenkirchen again, which of course we mentioned earlier in the episode. Yeah. And they also mentioned the German town of Heinsberg. More about that in about a month's time. So this this battle was uh, was 30 Corps. It was the 43rd Wessex Infantry Division, which is British, uh, with the American 84th Rail Splitter Infantry Division. Uh, and they captured the area there and actually the, the line the front line didn't move again until the fifty second Lowland Division moved down there uh, in January nineteen forty five. And finally, we're going to do thought for the day. Most editions of the Lowlander had a thought for the day, and we're going to try and pick the the the, the one that really catches our eye because there are some religious ones, there are some famous quotes for history. But if you want to read this one out, and then we'll have a little look at where it's come from and what it means afterwards. Thought for the day, 17th of November, 1944. There is no standing still, no going back. We can only go forward, and we should do that in the spirit of the crucified, with our invincible crosses before us. Madame Chiang Kai-shek. You know who she was, don't you? Yes, even I know that as. Yes, she was the wife of Mr Chiang Kai-shek, who was the leader of the nationalist government in China. Her real name was Sung Mei Ling, but she was known as Madam Chiang Kai-shek, and she helped to publicise his cause in the West. In the, I think it was the early 1930s, she launched something called the New Life Movement, which is a programme that tried to help the spread of communism by teaching traditional Chinese values instead. 
Um, she wrote a lot of articles about China for American journals. And in mid-1940s, I suppose it would have been, mid, yeah, 43, 44, um, she became the first Chinese and only the second woman to address a joint session of Congress. And she was basically trying to increase support and raise funds for China in its war against Japan. And her efforts resulted in so much financial aid um, that um, her name appeared on the US list of the 10 most admired women in the world in 1966, 1967. Wow. She was, she was quite a woman. Yeah, clearly. I think that's a very good point on which to end this first episode of The Lowlander, don't you? Um, well, we've got plenty to think about. Uh, what we'll do is we'll put some of these odds and ends up on Twitter um, so that people can see what The Lowlander looks like. That's a very good idea. All right, I'll get onto that straight away. And I will see you next time. Yeah, see you next time. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Lowlander. The Lowlander was written, produced and presented by Andy Aitchison and Merrin Walters. This was a hellish good production. And now we go to the classified football results for the week commencing the 15th of November 1944. English League North Aston Villa 4, Coventry City 0, Barnsley 6, Rotherham United 5, Bradford 0, Darlington 3, Burnley 0, Accrington Stanley 0, Bury 2, Liverpool 0, Chester 2, Tranmere Rovers 2. Derby County 3, Chesterfield 1 Doncaster Rovers 2, Mansfield Town 1 Everton 3, Crew Alexandra 5 Burnsby Town 1, Sheffield Wednesday 2 Halifax Town 4, Blackpool 2 Hull City 2, Gateshead 3 Leeds United 6, Hartlepool 2 Manchester United 3, Manchester City 2 Middlesbrough 0 Huddersfield Town 1 Newcastle United 11 Bradford City 0 Northampton 3 Leicester City 1 Nottingham Forest 2 Lincoln City 2 Oldham Athletic 3 Blackburn Rovers 0 Preston North End 2 Bolton Wanderers 3 Sheffield United 6 Notts County 0 Southport 2 Rochdale 2 Stoke City 2 Port Vale, 0. Walsall, 4. Birmingham, 1. Wolves, 3. West Bromwich Albion, 2. Wrexham, 8. Stockport, 0. York City, 3. Sunderland, 5. English League West. Aberaman, 1. Bristol City, 5. Bath City, 4. Cardiff City, 2. Swansea Town, 1. Lovells Athletic, 2. Scottish League South Albion Rovers 4 Morton 5 Dumbarton 3 Clyde 0 Hamilton 2 Hearts 2 Hibs 0 Motherwell 1 Partick Thistle 1 Falkirk 2 Queen's Park 1 Rangers 4 St Mirren 2 Adrianians 1
Thirdlonic 1, Celtic 3. Scottish League, North East. Dundee United 2, Arbroath 5. East Fife 1, Dunfermline 5. Falkirk 1, Dundee 2. Hearts 0, Aberdeen 7. Rangers 2, Wraith Rovers 1. English League, South. Aldershot 3, Luton Town 2. Arsenal 4, Watford 0. Brentford 1, Crystal Palace 2. Brighton Hove Albion 3, Chelsea 5. Charlton Athletic 1, Queen's Park Rangers 2. Clapton Orient 0, Tottenham 2. Fulham 0, Portsmouth 2. Reading 2, Millwall 2. Southampton 2, West Ham 1. Was that really 11 0 for Newcastle? Yeah, against Bradford. <laughs> oh, whitewash. That's a lot of football. That's a lot of football.